turn in your Bibles to Ezra 3, 1 through 13. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josedach, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings of the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring trees, cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Joshua with his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, and the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the, house, with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the very word of the Lord. The third chapter of Ezra that we just had read for us tells the story of the recently returned Jews establishing some semblance of religious worship once again in their homeland. You'll notice that the chapter breaks into two distinct episodes, the first telling of the establishment of an altar for the offering of sacrifices, and the second tells the story of the laying of the foundation of the second temple. So this chapter is about the people returned from exile worshiping once again. Why is this such a significant factor? Last week, Pastor Darrell brought us through the first two chapters, and 
Israel's return to the land. Now here in chapter 3, first thing that's recorded for us, first thing Ezra wants to tell us about is the importance of establishing some form of corporate worship once again. And the reason why this is significant is because throughout the Bible, worship is massively important for the formation of God's people. In the Bible, the genuine worship of God is intended to keep God's people anchored to the promise of his steadfast love for them. The genuine worship of God is intended to keep the people of God anchored, anchored to the promise of God's steadfast love for his people. So over the last year and a half, as a church, of course, like all churches, the elders have been praying, agonizing, making decisions about how we're going to conduct worship together uh, every week. It's taken on all kinds of different forms. I think we've tried it all, right? We had no service for two weeks as we dealt with the reality last March, and then we went to a um, pre-recorded liturgy. Remember those days? I came back from sabbatical, and it was just me and a camera. I was like, what was going on? Caleb, remember that? It was challenging. Um, Then we got to start inviting a few people to come. At least there was people in the seats uh, as we did the pre-recorded liturgy. Then we started the live stream, and that was new. And there's still a few people joining us in the live stream, so that's still a thing. Then we had the abbreviated service, and everybody started to come in. I'm sure I've missed a few phases along the way, and now here we are today. I feel very much uh, the same as the people that are described in Ezra chapter 3. There's a similar vibe for me from what we read in the story. The the corporate worship of God matters. It, It matters enough that we have to agonize and make decisions about how we're going to do things and what shape that's going to take. And everybody, I'm sure, has different opinions about that. But this does matter. It it matters in ways, even coming out of a pandemic, that I think we didn't even notice before. And that's what I want us to think about this morning as we look at this chapter together. The reason for worship, and I'm talking about the distinctive reason that's given for us in Ezra 3, and what we can learn from that. So it's not the only reason why we worship. I'm going to talk about the reason for worship, the renewal of worship, and then lastly, the response. So the reason for worship, the renewal, we'll see what that means momentarily, and and even the different responses that God's people have to corporate worship. So let's begin. First, the reason for worship. Again, in this chapter, it's clear that worship, corporate worship, was a priority for the children of Israel as they were reestablishing something of their traditional forms of worship as quickly as they could. I mean, you have to try to imagine you come back to your homeland that's been completely devastated some five, six centuries before, completely leveled, everything's gone Um, Your priority, if that was you, if we came back to Oklahoma after five, six decades and 
everything had been leveled, you would be building your house, trying to establish something for your family. But the first thing Ezra tells us is that the people together said, we got to get something like corporate worship back in place. Why was this so important? We get an answer in this context in verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. Now, many English translations, such as the NIV, translate verse 3 in a way that highlights the courage or boldness or fearlessness of this particular act. The people built the altar, the NIV, I think, says, despite their fear of the peoples around them. But I think the ESV has it right, or at least implies, that what's going on here, the word for, is giving the reason for their actions. The action taken here in verse 3 was done out of fear. The reason they built the altar was because they were afraid, afraid of the peoples of the lands. Now, who, who are the people around them that are bringing them fear? These are the people who were not part of the returnees from exile. They will become adversarial by the time we get to the next chapter where we will discover much more about their identity. Their opposition to these who had returned from exile will become a major focus throughout the first plot in Ezra's story, through the first six chapters. These are some of the people who were already living in their land when the Jews returned from Babylon. It's not quite accurate to say they were non-Jews. Chapter 2 already alerted us to some controversy about the genealogy of some who could not prove whether or not they belonged to Israel. But imagine, just imagine you return back and somebody else is living where your house once stood. Might be a little conflict that ensues. Indeed, much of what we even hear going on in Palestine right now is much that same story. But on the other hand, these are people who've been living there for 50, 60 years. So how's this going to work out? These adversaries in chapter 4 claim, in fact, to worship the same God as these Jews who have returned. So whoever they are, and again, we'll see more about them next week, their presence in Jerusalem creates a conflict. And it's a matter of great concern for these returnees from Babylon. It it drove them here to prioritize reestablishing some kind of habit of worship. Now that seems strange. Many pagan peoples worship because they fear the gods, but the children of Israel worship because they fear the people. So in order to make sense of what's happening here and this kind of fear that's in place, we have to consider what about the people of the land made these returned exiles afraid? This danger was not apparently physical. Nothing in the story of Ezra makes it sound as if the peoples of the land are threatening to wage war against the returnees. The danger is also not legal. Remember, these exiles have returned with the full authority of the reigning king of the empire. There's no reason for them to be afraid that they are going to be brought into court 
found guilty of some crime against the Persian Empire. They're doing what Cyrus has commissioned them to do. So why are they afraid of the peoples? The fear of the children of Israel found an appropriate response, we find here, in worship. They, they responded to the fear by establishing worship. They were afraid of the peoples of the lands, so what they do? They built an altar, and they offered burnt offerings morning and evening, verse 3. Verses 4 to 6 tells us that they kept the Feast of Booths according to the directions of the Torah. Were they, were they just wanting to ensure that God would protect them from maybe some future physical threat of the people around them? Hardly, because that's not the nature of Old Testament worship, nor is it the nature of New Testament worship. Neither is intended to be practiced as some sort of superstition, though, of course, many professing Christians do exactly that. They attend church thinking that's kind of how you get God to stay on your side, make sure everything goes well for you. Maybe that's what lurks in your own heart. You do religious things hoping to get religious benefits to get God or maybe the gods on your side. But that's just not the way worship in the Bible works, in the Old Testament or in the New This is not what concerned the people who had just returned from exile. They are confident. The whole point of being brought back from exile is that sins have been forgiven. God has poured out mercy upon them. They know that God is with them and on their side. So why then do they hasten to return to worship? Here's why. What they feared from the peoples around them, was the same fear that they had when they went into Babylon. It was not a fear of being destroyed by the people around them. It was a fear of being assimilated into them. They had had just been through decades of exile in Babylon, a circumstance that they knew was theological. They had been sent into exile, 2 Chronicles 36, 14 says, because they had been exceedingly unfaithful. They had turned away, rejected their identity as the people of God. And now they're back. They've been, they've been redeemed. They've, they've experienced a new exodus, as it were. They, they've come into a new land, a promised land, and they understand that this also is a theological turn of events. God had poured out mercy and grace upon them. They had learned a very important lesson, and they did not want to forget it. They did not want to forget it. In fact, one of the Psalms that was written during the time of the exile, Psalm 137, says uh, twice in there, the psalmist says, If I forget... Basic my, if I forget my basic identity, let my right hand forget its skill, the psalmist says. If I forget my identity, let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth, the psalmist writes. I don't want to forget where I've been, why I was there, where I am now because of the mercy and grace and love of God. I don't want to forget, and that's one of the primary reasons for worship, according to the Bible. God has given his people worship, not so that they can earn his favor, but so that they do not forget 
his favor. So that they do not end up bowing down to some dumb idol like the people of the lands around them. People of God. We live among the peoples of the lands, but the most fearful thing about that is we quickly take on their customs. We become the people that we were redeemed not to be. And God has given us worship to counteract that. Now, how does that work? (laughs) How does showing up to corporate worship, singing, hearing the word preached, how does it have that kind of protective effect? How does biblical worship help us remember our identity? And, And here's how. It does it by renewal. Worship is renewing. Every time we worship, we are engaging in something of a renewal ceremony. Remember, biblical worship, again, is not asking God for favor that he doesn't already pour out upon us. It's remembering the favor we've already been shown and living in light of it. So when we come to worship, Christian worship, biblical worship is altogether different from all other forms of worship. It is a renewal ceremony. In verse 8, Zerubbabel and Jeshua, we'll talk more about them in a later sermon as well. The, the, The ESV says they made a beginning. They initiated the construction of the new temple. That's what's going on here. But this was a significant moment for the people who have recently returned from captivity in Babylon. And it points to the significance of the renewing effect of Christian worship even in our day. Again, unless we remember that the story in Ezra 3 is part and parcel with our own story as Christians, we will miss the implications. It's easy to overlook the meaning and significance of many of the details in these verses, but I I just want to point out a few observations from the details that are here that would be easy just to read over and and point to the echoes that still exist for us even in a different time and a different place. Here's the first one. Notice the timing of their worship. The chapter begins, when the seventh month came. That's not the month of July. (laughs) This is the Hebrew calendar. And the seventh month is the Jewish month of Tishrei. It's probably the most important month collectively for this people. There were several festivals that took place during the seventh month. This is roughly the month of September in our calendar. This is the month for the festival of trumpets, the day of atonement, feast of booths. No doubt there was much work to be done just to get settled into their new homes, right? You've just come back from exile. I mean, you're you're just trying to store life again in this new place. But here was the calendar, there to keep them anchored to the routines of worship and make worship a priority. The biblical calendar urges God's people to reserve one day out of seven for spiritual rest and worship. We call it a Sabbath. And far from being a religious duty, oh, the controversy over it. You have to keep the Sabbath... Far from being a religious duty, don't you see? The Sabbath and the rhythm of Sabbath is from God one of the greatest gifts. It's a place to invite you, as Jesus invited his disciples, to get away. 
from the busyness of life. And as Jesus said, rest a while. Rest. Rest from the busyness of the work that God has given you to do, to be sure. Literally, physical rest. But more importantly, rest from the propensity to start making the work God has given you. God-ordained work, to be sure, an idol. That's what the peoples of the lands do. It becomes all-consuming. Or to start making the money that comes from it, or the success, or maybe even the fear of boredom, an idol. God says, why don't you come away and rest? That's what the people of the land do. They're looking for something to bring them some sense of satisfaction. And people of God, you have been given a gift to set aside your ordinary vocations and daily duties and rest. And rest. Remember who you are. So the timing of worship contributes to a second observation that you might make in this chapter about the renewal that comes from biblical worship. In verse 1, we read that the children of Israel gathered as one man to Jerusalem. So again, notice that the emphasis in this chapter is on the corporate nature of worship. We, much of this is the same for our daily routines and habits of worship, but the emphasis in this chapter is on the corporate nature of it. Worship was not about having a personal experience, but a collective experience. Its renewing power was found in the togetherness of the people. And you see this emphasized in verse 8 too. While the people were led by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, The verse goes on to mention all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Everyone participated. And there's something really important about this. Something shaping and renewing about everyone being invited and coming together to praise the Lord. For worship to have its full renewing effect, we need everybody. We need everybody to come. And this is one reason why it matters that we worship God together, that we're here in proximity to one another. It matters, yes, on Sunday mornings, but it also matters when we gather in our missional families or whatever other gatherings are planned together invitations into homes, hospitality. Don't turn these down. Engage. These things matter. They're significant. Even the peoples around us, given a pandemic, have begun to see, you know, there's something about it. You can't quite do on Zoom, right? There's something about being together. It matters. We should know this. This is our story all the way back in the time of Ezra. Coming together like this has a profound impact on shaping and sharing our identity as believers in Jesus and in his gospel. But then one more thing that is significant for worship if it's going to have this renewing impact. And notice this third thing is the form of worship. As we read these verses, we see that these returnees from exile did not, they didn't just make up the form of the worship that they would now have post-exile, but instead they patterned it as much as possible on how worship was done before they went into exile. 
After the foundation of the temple was laid, verse 10 says, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Now, it's not hard to imagine that so many things were different now, post-exile. But much of what is described in this chapter is what we find prescribed in Numbers 10, verses 8 and 10, or in the dedication of Solomon's temple described in 2 Chronicles 5 and 7. If you just wrote those passages in your margin, you could look at them later. It's like clear that what they're doing here is meant to reflect what happened in a previous generation. One commentator writes, it is as though our writer wishes to emphasize that despite the exile and despite the fact that physically the second temple was not the same as the first, yet from the point of view of forms of worship, nothing had changed. Verse 11 tells us, that the people sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, singing the refrain, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. That's the familiar refrain sung at the dedication of Solomon's temple, Second Chronicles 5.13. You find it several times in the book of Psalms, Psalm 100, Psalm 106, Psalm 107, Psalm 118, and you probably remember Psalm 136, where part of the refrain occurs in every single verse. This was a formative song in Israel's liturgy. But again, take the refrain, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever to Israel. And now imagine the setting. Here we have Israel, fresh out of exile, suffering under Babylonian oppression for decades. There's no doubt now that the words of this familiar refrain have taken on new meaning than the first time when they were sung. First time was at the dedication of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple. There was nothing like it. One of the great wonders of the ancient world, right? Solomon's temple? Are you kidding me? The Lord is good. Look at the temple. He is good. His steadfast love returns. Now you have freshly poured foundation. That's it. You've got houses in ruins. You've got other people living on your property. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. The conditions were more conducive to humility than to pride, writes one commentator, as they worshiped with a mere groundbreaking ceremony of the new temple having just been completed. A previous generation could sing this song from a place of prosperity. Everything's going well. Solomon's reigning. We are in charge. Everybody listens to us. And now the situation's altogether different, but the song is the same. Now this generation sings the song from a place of chastening. And yet they know God is good. His steadfast love has not been diminished one bit. The conditions had changed, but the content had not. At the center of worship was God and his attributes of goodness and love. But now, but now, known from a different perspective, 
And it is this aspect of worship that ought to be the center of our worship together as well. Once we see that what Jesus came to do for you and me, what we sing about in these songs, what Jesus came to do is to bring us out of exile. We sing of God's goodness and love just like they do, but with renewed meaning. Do you see it? The renewal of worship. Now, one last thing to observe from our text this morning and from this chapter, and that is the response, the response of worship. Verse 12 says that many of the older people in the congregation wept with a loud voice, while many others shouted aloud for joy. Notice the responses are dramatically different. Polar opposites. But one thing you can say, this was not a quiet scene. Everybody has been moved. Everybody has been stirred up. In fact, the chapter ends by saying the sound of the people's worship could be heard far away. So what explains the mixed feelings exhibited by the crowd at this moment? Now, it's not hard to understand the expression of joy, right? Israel is back in their land. God has kept his promise. Their pandemic is over. (laughs) Or so they think. And the future ahead is bright. So the people shout for joy. Of course they did. Of course they did. I mean, I for one, when the CDC made their statement a couple weeks ago, I was shouting for joy. Emily Fry was the only other person in the room. Are in the in that building, and I was like, I gotta find somebody. We gotta sell it. We gotta shout for joy. I mean, this is amazing. Don't rob me of my joy. I'm singing the songs this morning, and I'm thanking God that I don't have that I get to preach a longer sermon. I still got eight minutes on the clock. Don't you go look back there. I still I saw your heads turn. I'm singing for joy. Like this is the way it's supposed to be. We need this, people of God. We need it more than we possibly could know. But hopefully we've learned that we need it. So of course there should be joy. Of course there should be singing. It's entirely appropriate. It is good and right for God's people to see the future ahead as filled with opportunity. We've just come out of a really dark season. Well, maybe it's not over. Maybe not. We may be masked again next week for all I know. But there is expectation and joy because God is good to his people. His steadfast love endures forever. Join me in celebration for what God has done. Now, generally speaking, that's the contribution that a younger generation makes to a congregation. Opportunity. Future is bright. Looking ahead. Praise God. We need this kind of emotive response to God's goodness and love. We need a church filled with youthfulness. New babies born. Young people coming in. Praise God. I get to tell you all the time. I pastor a church where I'm one of the oldest people in the church. And I'm thankful. 
I'm thankful. It's good. It is good to have this perspective. The past may have been horrific, but God is good. His love and his steadfast, his steadfast love is something you can count on. We move forward with optimism. Yes, we do. This is who we are. This is who we are. But then you got the old people weeping. Was it because they are stereotypical of those who say, well, back in my day, things were better. I mean, look at just the world now. Is that what's going on here? Are, are these just curmudgeons <laughs> saying, well, in fact, we know that this was a problem that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah had to confront when the temple was finished. And when the new temple, the second temple, paled in comparison to Solomon's, you get this kind of response. But I think something different's going on here. This is a different time. This is the foundation's just been laid. In fact, it's going to take, we're going to find out next week, a long time before this second temple is completed. So this is an entirely different scene. And there's nothing here that demands that explanation for the tears. But on the other hand, don't minimize what's going on. These are not tears of joy. This is a lament, a loud lament. This is the kind of lament that if you're around somebody experiencing this kind of emotion, it's uncomfortable. This is David after his son Absalom is killed saying, Absalom! Oh, Absalom! I mean, you walk in a room where somebody is lamenting like that and you, you're uncomfortable. We don't do that much in our culture. But I think that we are supposed to see the weeping here mixed with the shouts of joy as indicative both of them, of the way God's people ought to respond. There's nothing in this particular text that says the weeping, the lament of a few of the older crowd as something negative. That, that's true when Haggai and Zechariah prophesied later, but, but there's something just as important here as there is in the celebration. What could it be? And what does it teach us? Here we have an older generation who had come to know firsthand the reality of what their sins deserved. They had seen the severity of God's wrath poured out on a people who have rebelled against the Lord. These were the people who lived in the time of the first temple. They saw it. They knew what it was like to then experience the devastation. They'd been changed. They knew how much they had lost. But the younger generation mixed in with them could see the possibilities that come from the hope of a God who is good and whose love is steadfast. And we need both responses. We need them both. Christian worship is renewing and Christian worship 
is needed because of the peoples of the lands in this particular way. God is good. His love is steadfast. He is completely for us. He's entirely dependable. And the character of God gives his people the greatest confidence for the days ahead, come what may. Our problem is most of us find ourselves kind of in the the mushy middle of that response. We hold back too much of our joy. (laughs) Bring the trumpets and the cymbals. This is getting loud. You okay with that? That's how they worshiped. Maybe we should lift your voice and sing. We need it, people of God. We need it. But we also hold back too much of our lament. Many churches, thinking that they are accurate in gospel proclamation, just want joy, 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 people of God. We have more maturity than that in Christ. We don't let ourselves go in joy, but we also try to hide to the best of our ability our pain. The goodness and steadfast love of God invites us to let it go. Let it go. Next week, as Morgan told us, we are going to commemorate and lament what happened 100 years ago in our state. We're going to spend a summer trying to press into that. And here's what I know. I know that this particular subject, even in this congregation, starts to make things uncomfortable. I know that. I know that I say things that make some of you feel uncomfortable in different ways. Let's have some maturity in Christ together. Can we do that? We should be the kinds of people that, according to 2 Corinthians 6.10, are free to be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Can we do both? We should be able to do both. We should be able to do both. Because we can grieve and lament because we know how horrific human sin is. And we don't have to hide it. We don't have to hide it when it's seen in others from a hundred years ago, but we also don't have to hide the fact that lurking in our own hearts without the mercy and grace of God is the same kind of sinfulness. The gospel is beautiful precisely because of what our sins deserve. And yet... Because of Jesus, we have good news. We know the best is yet to come. Oh, the Lord is good. We have been brought out of exile. We have been rescued over and over and over again. And the steadfast love of God has no expiration date. So we have much to look forward to. And you can only see this, though, in Christian worship. It's only Christian worship that invites you to see both. The horror of sin and its consequences 
and the greatness of God's goodness and his steadfast love in Jesus Christ. That's who we are. That's why we worship. That's what worship does. And that's how we should respond. May God help us. Let's pray together.